Welcome to Ride Pure, the Royal Enfield podcast. A podcast about Royal Enfield motorcycles, the people who create and build them, you, the people that ride them, the things you do to them, and the places you explore on them. I'm Gordon May, Royal Enfield's historian, author, and overland motorcycle traveller, and I'll be hosting this Adventure Diaries episode. We're super excited to be again joined by motorcycle adventurer Jack Groves for the concluding part of his record-breaking round-the-world journey on a Royal Enfield Himalayan. Thanks for joining us again, Jack. Then turned north into Bolivia and Peru, at which point I think it would be fair to say everything turned to custard. Yes, uh, the proverbial excrement hit the fan in a major way. Um, and uh, yeah, from that point on, um, my fate wasn't really in my hands anymore. So it was a case of, you know, trying to find shelter in the storm, um, I think. And I think everyone around the world had had a very similar experience, whether, wherever they were. Um, for me, obviously, it was, it was a weird sense of being in another country, in another language, um, in places that I'd never been before. So, it, you know, it was bad enough, I guess, for people um, around the world at home trying to sort of figure out a new lifestyle and, and figure out the, the changes that were coming through thick and fast. But obviously for me, I was trying to think also about, well, where do I store my bike? Uh, how do I, do I, am I going to overstay my visa? Um, am I going to stay my vehicle permit? Um, and all of this was this thought process is really happening. There was one night and I'm just looking through my photos now, Thursday, the 12th of March, 2020, there's a video that was the night I arrived in La Paz, Bolivia. I arrived at night in rush hour, um, having driven about 400, 500 kilometers that day. Um, the whole country was almost shut down because of um, various protests that were going on at the time about fuel prices. So, um, yeah, I arrived in La Paz to basically just pandemonium chaos. Uh, the main road into La Paz is really, really high. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it was a horrendous, horrendous evening to um, – to, uh, to, to, to get in. Um, and I remember getting to La Paz, had a day or two there, and pretty much just had to war game. I had to stop, um, reassess, look at the borders, look at the times, look at the flight situations, speak to the British embassies and say, you know, what's happening? And obviously, WhatsApp groups start. And you know how WhatsApp groups are. One person says something, and then five minutes later, Chinese whispers have done their job. Um, and suddenly, you know, new information and just complete, you know, uh, rubbish is, is, is going around. So, um, I had to make a decision. And on Friday the 13th, that was the last day uh, in La Paz, the evening of Friday 13th of March 2020, I said, uh, I'm not going to get stuck here. I'm going to make a dash for the for the Peruvian, uh, Peruvian border, sorry. Um, and so that morning. And what, what, made, what, made you, what made you make that decision? It was a, it was a culmination, a, sort of a, a mix of other people being there at the same time. I think if, if readers are following Enfield or know Enfield well, they'll know of Itchy Boots and Noralee and uh, the travels that she's, she'd been mm. doing on the Himalayan at the time. She was actually in, in La Paz the same few days as me in the same hostel as me because of I Overland and you know, everyone goes to sort of similar places. And I remember being there in this feverish atmosphere as everyone decided, was quickly having to decide, well, what do we do? Where do we go? Um, Norley decided to leave. She boots. She ended up uh, flying out, and the, I think her bike is still in in uh, in Peru in Peru somewhere. Um, but I just basically had to. It was suddenly every man for themselves. People scattered. Uh, some people went to Chile. Some people went to Peru. Some people stayed in La Paz. Um, but I just said, look, it's just the border is about a kilometre away. Uh, sorry, not kilometre. About a, a half a day's ride away. If the border closes, I'm stuck, and I am and. And I am really stuck because, you know, there is only one border with with uh, Peru that is uh, that is close to La Paz, and if that shuts, then I really I don't have many other options. So um, I made a dash. I left I left La Paz 
um, the morning after the morning I, le- I left Lepal, I'm just remembering now I, uh, I got to a fuel station and everyone was panic buying fuel. Um, you know, queues and queues of people panic buying fuel, Bolivians trying to get as much fuel as they could because there was a, there was a fear that uh, if everything started shutting down again or lockdown started, then obviously you wouldn't be able to go out and buy fuel for your car. So I remember stopping at this petrol station um, and they said, no, we don't serve foreigners fuel. We don't, we don't, we, we can't give you any fuel. And I said, I remember saying to him, I have no, I have no range left. I have to get to Peru now. And I had this nightmare scenario of, I was thinking, if I don't get to Peru now, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be stuck at this petrol station outside La Paz because they won't serve me any fuel. But in the end, I managed to convince this Bolivian. I said, look, can you just, would you mind if you just put something in your truck? Meet me about 100 meters down the road. I'll give you some, I'll give you some, uh, some pesos, and uh, and I'll put it, you know, straight into my, uh, straight into my fuel tank, which he kindly did. Um, and the kindness of this stranger allowed me to get to Peru um, that afternoon. Um, near the island of uh, Copacabana. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a, they've got, got a, a small boat across the across the um, Lake Titicaca, highest lake in the world, um, and managed to get to the Peruvian border. I remember I had one last empanada in Bolivia before um, I went to the Peruvian border. And for the first time, you saw masks and you saw uh, you know tests and you saw people with perspex screens. Um, and I walked into the border, and, 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 and that was the first time I remember it vividly now that people were, you know, were scared of you and were walking around you and looking suddenly with suspicion at foreigners, whereas before they'd been welcoming. Um, and that was a pretty horrible change to to sort of see in, in the local people. Uh, but I did obviously cross into uh, into, into Peru that day. That day, um, the same border as as the long way up when they came up. There were some long way up stickers on that border, so it's quite a well trodden path. Um, and I made for a city called Puno. P-U-N-O, on the, on the shores of Lake Titicaca that evening, um, where I stopped, reassessed again, had a look at the latest news. But that very, very same evening, um, the Peruvian president announced that from midnight the next day, the borders would close. So the Bolivian border slammed shut behind me just as after I crossed. Um, and he also said that, in effect, from midnight, the country would go into a state of martial law. Lockdown would ensue, enforced by the military and the police. Um you know, flights out would be restricted and everyone would be constrained to their to their houses. So it suddenly just came crashing down in the most drastic, drastic fashion. So from you decided not to stay in Puno, where did you head to from there? I, I got the map out uh, and, and I, I basically drew a 400 kilometre radius on my map looking for what, what, was in, what was within range the next day. I remember I was in the hotel where I'd driven down the hallway of the hotel to park my bike inside because I sort of pleaded with them and, uh, and asked if I could park inside. I've actually got a pic. I'm looking at a picture now that I, that I took um, that evening or a video sorry, I took, I recorded that, that evening as I found out the news um, and I realized what it meant. Because I think when you hear news like that, um, you, my natural tendency was to think, yeah, well, this is all, this is all uh, statements and, 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 and politics and they can't, you can't shut them the borders and close the airspace this is this isn't this isn't what happens you know this isn't this has never happened in my in my lifetime i've never remembered a, a time this has happened and frankly you can go back as as far as I, i've later actually researched this and saw when was was there a more difficult time to travel in the past few years um in the past sort of few decades and, the, and it is it is this is the well this past two years has been the hardest time to travel in terms of international borders since since world war Two. um there is there has never been over the past year or two, an easier, you know, a harder time to travel, apart from, you know, 1945 and the end of the Second World War. So um, it was just not part of the of a comprehensible, you know, um, course of action to think that, think that what happened could happen. 
but I was I was aware of the seriousness when I was looking at news reports from from Europe and seeing what was happening in Bergamo in Italy, and what was happening in part, other parts of Europe, um, and you sort of saw you know the panic, the chaos, and there was definitely a sense of you know we may be isolated now, but that probably won't continue. So I, I got the map out. I drew 400 kilometers and I thought, right, where can I get to? Where is within range? And right on the limit, and I'm talking on the line that I drew, was Cusco. Um, Cusco, a city I had always heard about. I'd always dreamt of going, uh, but I knew you know, next to nothing about, apart from the gateway to Machu Picchu, capital of the Incas, um, and, and obviously the tourism, the beating tourism heart of South America. Um, and I said, right, it's Cusco. Could the decision has been made for me? It's the only big city that I that I really have in range. Um, so the next morning, in torrential rain, I put all of my Gore-Tex on. Um, I looked up at the sky, filled with clouds of thunder, and uh, I remember the two gentlemen who um, who were, owned the small hotel I was staying in in Puno. Um, they looked at me and they said, um, uh, "Buena se- buena suerte, señor. Buena suerte," which obviously means. Good luck, good luck, sir. Uh, and and I remember looking at them, and sort of smiling and laughing, and I saw they were no, they were deadly serious, um, because the Peruvians were, were very scared, and uh, they are a very um, I wouldn't say suspicious, but they are a very uh, they are people based on their traditions, based on their on their sort of suspicions and and and, and religion uh, and ways ancient ways of doing things. Um, and I think it was a weird sort of atmosphere as I left Puno that day and, and the rain was bucketing it down and I sort of swung north. Um, it was it was trepidation, I think was the was the right way of describing it. It was um, a nervousness in the air that you couldn't describe, but you could definitely feel. And so I just headed to Cusco flat out all day. Uh, I, I'm just looking looking at photos again now. I stopped for a lunch of yogurt, orange juice, tuna, can of tuna and a bit of bread. That was lunch by the side of the road. Um, and then basically from the plains of Puno, you head up into the Andes. The roads get twistier. Uh, the, the air gets thinner. The, the, the chill starts coming in as, the, as night falls. Um, and then I made, finally made it to Cusco. And I was coming into the outskirts of the city as the police were shutting down, putting down blockades. So I kept, went through about half a dozen blockades on the road to Cusco. The policeman saying to me, you know, you've, been, you've got through, you've got three or four hours left to get into the city. So hurry up because the next blockade, they're going to start to shut the roads down to shut down circulation. Um, and little did I know, if I'd got stuck in either of those blockades, I would have been there for four months, wherever I stopped. And this was the crazy thing is that wherever you stopped that evening, wherever you were on the evening of the 14th, uh, sorry, the 16th of, of March 2020 was where you would, would stay for four months. And no one knew that. But um, luckily, I made it to to a hostel. I made it to, to, a, to the hallowed ground of Wild Rover Cusco. And anyone who's sort of traveled in South America uh, will probably know the name Wild Rover because it is just a sort of a, uh, a debaucherous hostel uh, that has a, is it a hostel chain where... <laughs> Uh, generally, people people go to 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 to, to consume um, alcohol and other such um, substances. Um, and uh, I, I'd never heard of it before. I'd only heard of it in Argentina when somebody said to me, "Well, if you do manage to get to Cusco, stay in Wild Rover. They've got parking. You'll be all right there." So that's the only reason I'd heard of Wild Rover. And I had this pin on my map, and I just thought, "Right, I'm going to go here." Uh, turned up, they had parking. Drove down the ramp, the uh, the, the gate shut behind me, and that was it. From that moment on, remember that evening, uh, sitting with a sitting with a beer in the hostel bar and a burger, uh, reading the news. And um, the next morning, the gates were shut. Policemen were standing outside. 
police drones are flying over the hostel looking to make sure that people weren't gathering in groups in the in the garden outside drinking um despite the fact that you know we obviously made made the best of it and, and had a had a good time um or tried to have a, have as good a time as we could given what was happening outside and the madness as the country just slowly shut down um but uh yeah i'd end up being in that hostel i think for um i think it was two weeks and during those two weeks if anyone's what you know the, the disaster movies that people people watch when suddenly you know the continents going down, which is a zombie invasion and people rushing to the airport. It was, it was, it was akin <laughs> to that. It was just this, you know, crazy people just lost, lost sort of all sense of, um, of, 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 of sense as far as I could see, because WhatsApp group started and you could, a WhatsApp group of about five people is bad enough or 10 people try a WhatsApp group of 600 people, the, the Brits stuck in Peru. It was a WhatsApp group of Brits stuck in Peru. Um, and you had people saying, this is, you know, it, it, it was just, it was just a, a very odd, bizarre group of um, COVID sort of denialists. And then you had COVID, uber, uber COVID uh, scare monkeys. And you had everything in between. People were just, you know, having arguments and everyone was saying, you know, this is happening. And someone said, no, 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 this is happening. And so-and-so said, you can fly out of here and there's a plane going from here. And it was just, nothing was, was clear at all. So I ended up putting some message in the group just saying, you know, please just, everyone just chill out. Have a keep, keep some cool heads. Message the right people. Put some. We'll put put a petition together and put a list together of the people who are, who are where they are. Let's send that on to the British Consul of get a list of people in Arequipa, list of people in Cusco, list of people in Lima, and let's make give that information to the embassy. Let's not just you know throw insults on a massive WhatsApp group. Um, and um, yeah, bit by bit, basically the, the Israelis flew out first. The Israelis were very quick to fly. Then the Americans got planes on. Uh, then the Dutch came in, and then even the French went out. And that was a real moment when the French flew out of uh, flew out of Cusco and had a had a plane organised because I think all the Brits were sitting there thinking the French can get out before us. You know, that's when you know things are bad. Uh, if, if 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 they're they're beating us on the way out. Um, uh, so yeah, two weeks there, two weeks in the hostel. I managed to break out on the fourth day to on the excuse of going to the pharmacy when in fact I, I managed to get into the supermarket to, to to get some supplies and just go for a walk really to clear my head uh, and, and to sort of get a breath of fresh air. Um, but then two weeks later, the hostel closed. The hostel owner said, I can't, I can't have people here anymore. Um, the government uh, and the police, have, the restrictions are getting too strict uh, and there's not, we can't keep open for, you know, for there are about 20 people left at that point. So they said, no, we're closing the hostel, get out. And I said, can I stay with my bike? I'll work, you know, I'll clean, I'll work uh, in the hostel, sort of keep things running, do any maintenance work. He said, no, 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 you're gone too. So I had to, I remember distinctly packing the bike up and this just broke me. This was, you know, packing the bike up, putting it into the hostel, into this sort of storage shed at this random hostel that I've been staying in uh, and and basically you know, putting the cover over it and saying, "Well, I'm, I'm no, I have no idea when I'm next gonna when I'm next gonna see the thing." Um, there were a few group of Brits that had a hospital, had booked an Airbnb, so uh, I said, "Look, can I just bunk with you for a few days until I can get back into the hostel and, and stay with my bike?" And they said, "Of course." Uh, but the evening, so I went to the Airbnb, and that evening we all got the email through that finally a British repatriation flight had been organised from Lima. And we were all going to be on the on the plane from Cusco the next day. Uh, so this is myself, um, three, uh, yeah, myself and a group of other Brits um, who all got this email. 
and we had this dinner. We had this sort of last supper <laughs> in this Airbnb in Cusco, um, where we basically just sort of you know bought some bought some steaks, had some had a, had a bottle of really sort of cheap Peruvian wine, which is absolutely rancid, but it did the job. Uh, and we had a, had a chat basically. What are we going to do? What are you all going to do? And one by one, they went round and they said, "I'm taking the plane. I'm taking the plane. I'm taking the plane. I'm taking the plane." Um, and then they all turned to me, and and I, and I had this moment where I had to decide. Um, my my head was clearly telling me, "Take the plane, you idiot!" <laughs> you know, this is not this the time for 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 being proud or for staying because of some misguided um, misguided belief in in sticking it out is over. Take the plane, and my heart was saying, "Stay." My heart was saying. In the in the wider perspective, hopefully of, of a long life, and you know, hopefully I've got a few more years left in me. Um, you know, this is this is not the end. Um, and actually, what is a few months? And I, that, at that point, I, that was the time when I was thinking it'll be max a few weeks. Really, worst case scenario, a month, and that is worst case scenario. You know, I'll be I'll be I'll be in I'll be in Ecuador by June. It'll, it'll be all right. You know, I'll be it'll be a month or two. Wait for it all to blow over. Just nestle up in an Airbnb with a few beers, um, and you'll be fine. Well, you know, look how long that turned out to be. Uh, and this was obviously in you know late March. Um, all of them flew out the next morning. And like six o'clock in the morning, I woke up to sort of say goodbye to them. They all left. Got did, did they try to did they try to persuade you to yeah, go with them? They did, they did. Um, and yeah. uh, one of them was actually one of, one of them was actually uh, one of the British girls I was sort of seeing at the time. Um, obviously, you spend two weeks in a hostel uh, in close proximity, and uh, yeah, friendships develop quite quickly. Um, and I remember, I remember her saying to me, "This is just a." you're being an idiot you you are you are acting out of out of pride and you're not thinking clearly and you do not know how long you will be here um and staying because of your bike is is a silly silly thing to do and and you'll regret it um i i you know i said look right up until up until the moment they left the morning as i closed the door at six o'clock in the morning my 29th of march 2020 up until that moment i was not sure what i was going to do and i could have very well packed my bags up and left with them leaving the bike leaving everything that i'd done um, behind in Cusco, but I decided to stay. And the morning, as I shut the door, I remember. I remember this so clearly. I shut the door on them. They walked off, got in the taxi, or got in this, uh, this sort of organised bus, and went to the airport and flew. As I shut the door, I um, I felt my taste and smell go. Um, my, my, my my smell went. Sorry, and I started having this. I, I suddenly had the chills. As I shut the door, I was sitting down in the morning, um, and I think I was watching something. I was watching a, a film. I think it was um, Pearl Harbor, which is a really, which is actually a really weird metaphor for, for what was what was then going to go and happen. Um, but I, I sat there watching this film in the morning, and I just felt horrendous. I felt awful. Uh, it was just a weird cold. I was I wasn't coughing, but I the taste and smell went. Uh, my nip, my, my joints and my muscles were just were in, you know really achy. Uh, I couldn't taste anything, uh, completely knackered. And I just remember thinking, one of the girls you know, that was in the Airbnb, the faucet, she did have a bit of a persistent dry cough. And I was flicking reading through sort of the early reports on what they thought COVID symptoms could be and, and what were the telltale signs. And I remember just thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, and I, call, I remember calling my family that, that morning of the 30th. I just said to them, you know, don't worry, guys. It's it's, it's all okay. Uh, I have started to stay, but I I think I might have um, this thing called this. I might have this, or whatever this is. 
and and they said, well, you, you have to you have to get a test. Uh, and so the day the day after, um, I was kicked out of the I was kicked out of the Airbnb because we only had it for a certain period of time. So I had to find a new Airbnb. I ended up going to that Airbnb, but I obviously re- I realized it was a communal space. And this is obviously when you don't know you know how serious the virus is. So I decided not to stay there. So I had to panic book another Airbnb. Uh, and on Wednesday, the first of April, I arrived in. Uh, what would then be my my sort of uh, prison away from home, my home away from home, but prison in the hills. Um, this 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 Airbnb I found last minute. Checked in, um, and I said to her, "Look, I, I have something. Please don't come and meet me. Just put the keys through the letterbox, and I'll sort myself out." And very, it's very kind. Peruvian lady said, "Okay." She knew the risks, but she said, "Yeah, I, I, you you can still stay." Um, and acts of kindness like that. Just you know, really stand out as being some 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 pretty important moments in the trip, um, and yeah, I remember sitting down <laughs> and uh, and walking around this this sort of I had this, it was a one room apartment basically you had the bed uh, a small kitchen area in one end um, and you had a table chairs a sofa and that was it you had a view a lovely view over the city uh, it's up in the hill in up in the hillside neighbourhood above Cusco they called the San Blas um, but I had no food I had my basically had my backpack a Bluetooth speaker a laptop um, you know, a few pairs of pants a few pairs of socks uh, but that was about it so I remember texting. A friend of mine got in touch and said, I know the British consul. I'll put you in touch. So this guy called Jimmy McSparron, um, uh, no, yeah, the guy called Jimmy basically gets in touch and says, Jack, I hear that you, I hear that you, uh, you're, you're, you're in trouble. I, I live here. I'm a con, the consul here. I can get, I can get you a test if you want. And I said, yes, let's get a test. I want to know. Uh, and so the next morning <laughs> I had on the morning of Thursday, the 2nd of April, I had a team of hazmat suits and they were not mucking around. There's a team of four people, full hazmat suits, you know, full mask, uh, hair net, shoe net, hand gloves, uh, turned up at this apartment. Um, and, and, and for the first time, first of many, I had a PCR test, which then later, two days later came back positive. And, so I tested positive for COVID. I was at 3,500 meters. Um, and from that moment on, the neighbors went into just complete silo mode. Uh, and they, I remember I had my, I had the window open once to have some ventilation and one of them threw rocks at the window to try and to tell me to stop, you know, to close the window, uh, shouting at me to sort of close all the windows. And even though it was, you know, there's a massive space between the houses, they were just absolutely terrified of suddenly the Westerners that were deemed to be bringing in the virus. So I was siloed in this apartment for two weeks. Um, I didn't do I just basically my day was get up, try and walk. I kept trying to walk around 5k a day, round and round and round this tiny little room, uh, counting my steps to try and get to sort of a decent, decent, uh, uh, a decent foot count to try and keep myself sane. Uh, video. How, how did you get? How did you get food? Well, this is this this British consul Jimmy. He he ended up literally being a lifesaver because I said to him, "No one's going to bring me food." Uh, the Airbnb owner said she didn't want to do it anymore because she was living with her mother, and I clearly, you know, I didn't want to uh, to risk her her passing it on. Um, the neighbours refused to allow me to open even a window, let alone my door. Um, I remember I, I opened the door once to sort of get some fresh air and, and just look look outside, and the woman out woman opposite opened and shouted at me properly visceral shouting at me to close the door and you know call the police if you if you dare open your door again um and it was just i remember just thinking this is just crazy that you know the over hostility i was like barricaded in this apartment with hostility you know each side of me um but Jimmy was the only person who 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 was willing to help. Um, he was you know, a trained paramedic, and he'd done lots of work out there with with the Peruvian military. So he was he was well versed in the nature of risk. 
and he said i said to him look jimmy can you just bring me some bring me some food i don't just you know preferably vegetables uh something to cook with some pasta tomato sauce basic uh bring me something please uh so the next day i get a whatsapp and he said right okay i'm coming by 2.25 uh, on the dot, open the door, I walk by, do basically do a drive-by, throw some stuff in the front door, and then close the door again. So the, the, all the neighbours around couldn't call the, didn't have time to call the police and start shouting at us again. Um, so at 2.25 on the dot, I open the door, fill enough, 30 seconds, he walks past, 30 seconds like it later, he walks past, and uh, throws a bottle of rum through the door. <laughs> and I remember the bottle, ding, 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 as this bottle of rum slid down the hallway. Um, and I remember, I remember saying, I remember just looking at it, thinking, "Jimmy, well, hang on, what's this? <laughs> I can't survive on this for three days." Um, but uh, you know, sure enough, he, he said, "Ah, run, walk back and lobbed a lobbed a bag of pasta and and, and tomato sauce through the door too." So I had a bottle of rum pasta uh pot noodles and tomato sauce uh, and that was that held me for sort of three or four days and then you know a few days later another package and basically through the course of some sort of care packages um he kept me he kept me going he kept he kept the uh he kept the sort of uh, the show i said the show on the road it was basically just me holed up in this apartment taking pictures of the sunset outside the 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 rule the the, the the, the window that was literally all I could do um trying to keep myself sane doing some um uh, trying to do some exercise which is a stupid idea in hindsight because obviously your cardio system is completely compromised um but 14 days later and this is when things really became um just unbelievable is I got the call midnight on the 14th this guy called Joel I think his name was was a foreign office crisis team. So the foreign office sent crisis teams to every single, um, you know, crisis spot around, around the world where they were evacuating British nationals. And the crisis team's sole job was to get people out as quickly as they could, as efficiently as they could. And so I've been, I've been in touch, you know, on and off with people um, over the past two weeks. Obviously, they've been flying people out the entire time, trying to get people on different planes, so German planes, Dutch planes, you know, everyone just get out, get out, get out, get out. And so it got to the point where I was, you know, there must have been about, there are normally 18,000 tourists in Cusco at any one time. Um, when I was, by the time I left, there were less than 50, of which, you know, 45 or so, uh, 40 to 45 were um, were consulate officials or embassy officials who lived there who were expats. So it was just, there was nobody left. And on the, on the, on the midnight on Tuesday, the, yeah, Tuesday the 14th of April, I got this call from, from Joe, Joe or Joel, and he said, Jack, the Peruvian president and the Peruvian military are going to, in the last ditch effort to get the remaining people out, have agreed to allow um, the European consulates and Western Western governments to fly the Peruvian presidential, you know, military jet. Effectively, it was it was meant to be a C one thirty Hercules, which is obviously the big ramp at the back. Um, but in the end, it ended up being the Peruvian president's personal jet. They're going to fly it to Cusco Airport. Anyone who is COVID positive will load onto that military aircraft. That military aircraft will then fly from Cusco Airport to Lima Airport, which is a two and a half hour flight, and then that will connect with the final British Airways plane that will leave tomorrow uh, afternoon from Lima to London. That this is, and he said to me, "This is um, the embassy is closing." He said, "The ambassador is leaving. This is your last chance. If you stay, and this is verbatim, he said, you are on your own." Um, and that was. That was not a fun message to hear from from the embassy. Given I was obviously still COVID positive, um, I was having weird sort of heart heart movements at the time. I think probably in hindsight due to the altitude. 
And I remember calling, I think I, I called my, 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 my family, which is five o'clock in the morning, UK, UK time. So they obviously picked up thinking that something awful had happened. I said, no, it's okay. It's okay. But I need to know, what do I do? It's 250 pounds to go all the way back to home. I am never going to get a better opportunity than this to leave, to lead, to lead, to get out of the situation. Um, and they said, take it. And I said, okay, I, I, I will try to get out and see if this works. If it works, great. If it doesn't, some higher power is, is telling me to stay. Um, so the next morning at five o'clock, I got up, I met um, the British embassy, sort of like a car taxi, took me to uh, where they were centralizing people. They made me put um, hair nets on, hand gloves, the full hazmat suits. We were loaded into a Korean, uh, Korean government-supplied dental ambulance I have no idea why they use a dental ambulance. We were loaded into a dental ambulance and given a police blue light escort through, you know, speeding through central Cusco to the airport. It was like they were transporting some sort of hazardous goods, like, you know, nuclear weapons are being transported. The amount of police that were around to sort of transport these infected gringos to the airport. Um, But we transported to the airport. (laughs) I remember this so clearly. We got to the airport um, open the doors of the ambulance, uh, and we sort of we were kept on the ambulance. But the doors we were allowed to open the doors to at least get some airflow through because I was wearing all of this protective gear plus all of my bike gear because I didn't have only had one rucksack with me. And I was with this Australian guy called Ray who was there on his BMW, but was in the same situation as me. Um, and we stood there. This this Peruvian presidential jet lands, and the Peruvian equivalent of Tom Cruise get well. He he thought he looked he was Tom Cruise gets out, and I am not joking. You know, green overalls brown leather jacket, aviators, slick back hair. He just thought, it was quite clear he thought he was Rambo. Um, and he steps down the, steps down the, uh, the stairs of this, of this presidential plane, looks around, um, and just basically takes us in, takes the scene in. You know, seven or eight gringos, hazmatted up to the nines. A few people were coughing quite heavily. And he just looked at us and shook his head. Quite clearly, he said, no, impossible, impossible, he said. And you don't need to know much Spanish to understand what that means. Uh, and he basically just turns hill, back up the stairs of the plane. The door is pulled shut. The turbine engines fare up again, and they just take off. And at that point, I turned to Jimmy, this consulate official, who had been loading the non-COVID positive people onto a commercial aircraft. The last commercial aircraft out of the city flew off at the same time. And I said to I said to Jimmy, what, what is what? This guy is the Peruvian Air Force. If you tell the Air Force to do something anywhere else in the world, you know, the Air Force the Air Force does it. That's 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 their job. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, when in Rome, different rules. You know, the, what happens in South America is 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 there, there are no rules. The only rules are the only rule is there are no rules. And this this play this guy gets back in his plane and just takes off again. Jimmy says, right, stand, stand there. He gets out his mobile phone. And because, you know, for whatever reason, his contacts through the military, he basically had the Ministry of Defense's personal phone number in his phone. So he sits there, gets his phone out, puts it to his ear, and he says, right, give me five minutes. And he calls the Ministry of Defense in his office in Lima. And he says, you know, what is going on? And I remember him saying, vividly saying, bueno, ¿qué está pasando? ¿Qué está pasando? Dime, eso es imposible. He's saying, what's happening? What is happening? How the hell is this? This isn't possible. Um, and the Minister of Defence said, ah, him again. <laughs> Puts his phone down, hangs up, 
and calls the pilot in the plane. And so we know that the pilot is being called and we're standing there on the tarmac of this runway, still wearing, you know, this ridiculously looking blue, blue dental, uh, dental sort of bodysuit with gloves and face mask and hairnet. And we're watching this plane and it just goes in a big bowl of mountains. The mountains surround the city uh, and the plane takes off and we see it flying, 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 flying in the sky, in the sky. And suddenly, obviously, he's getting an absolute, you know, roasting in the air, in the cockpit by the Peruvian Ministry of Defence saying, you know, you turn this plane around now. And we see this plane suddenly bank hard left in the sky. And it, it just turns all the way back around and comes into land again. So he's, you know, he'd been told point blank, direct order, turn the plane around, land, pick the gringos up. This guy lands, gets out the plane again, and what ensues now is a three-hour debate between the foreign ministry, the health ministry, the defence ministry, the British embassies, and it's just, I could see that it wasn't going to happen. Um, everyone could see it wasn't going to happen, um, and in the end it didn't happen. The pilot took off, disobeyed the order, and there I was, on the tarmac. I had, Jimmy had brought along a British flag to uh, to sort of show the, the other Brits where we had to congregate in the airport because there were obviously lots of nationalities. So there's a photo of me standing on the tarmac of Cusco Airport um, with a with a Union Jack flag uh, and a face mask, <laughs> that was and that was the that was the moment when I realised I was stuck. That was that was nothing more I could do. You know, the, the, the plane that I'd been offered, the final flight out, was uh, was something that I tried to do, but for whatever reason, for good or for bad, I was I was stuck, and that was it. And at this and at this point, you were the last Brit, the last in, Brit in Peru, Peru. Um, which was confirmed a few days later yeah. when the uh, I, I, well, everyone knows who she is, Kate Harrison, the U, the U, the UK ambassador, puts a, a sort of a self pat on the back tweet out about a day, no, that afternoon actually. She said a post picture of the British Airways plane in Lima on the tarmac saying. Yeah, final flight out of Peru. Very glad to have got capital capital letters, all British nationals out of the country. Um, thank you to the consular team who made this happen. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and what happened was that was a public tweet on Twitter. And I then replied from my account saying, um, uh, you know, congratulations, Ambassador. What about me? Question mark. I was I was then unceremoniously blocked by the British Embassy and by by her by her Twitter uh, and I, I was no you know, not allowed to see the tweets anymore so I was blocked by the official Twitter account of the ambassador to Peru because um, I basically called her bluff um, and from that moment on I was there for nine months nine months I was then nine stuck months. and literally every I won't go into the detail because how can I possibly push nine months into you know 10 minutes of, of, of podcast recording but suffice to say it, it was every two weeks so you were working on two weeks you know they said two weeks time news updates you do okay this will be it two weeks you know put your try and do something occupy yourself uh i, I ended up finding a and b which I, I i basically had for very very cheaply i think it's 100 120 pounds a month or something um for a very nice airbnb uh, which sort of gave, i had some space i had my own kitchen i had a bed uh, i was I, I could you know I, I could sustain myself i was sustainable there um but every two weeks they'd say okay the news update is there is no news another two weeks and she'd say, "Okay, okay, well, okay. it's annoying, but okay, two weeks. I can, I can re, I can replan. It's, it's all right. I've got this under control." Two weeks later, no, it's another two weeks, another two weeks, another two weeks. And this, bearing in mind, you can only leave for the supermarket, the bank, or the pharmacy. So my days would consist of getting up. I'd like try and go for a walk. 
Um, I'd keep abreast of all the news. I'd, I'd soak in all of the news from the previous day. You know, where the, where were the borders opening? Uh, could I get to, for example, could I get to Brazil? Could I drive through Brazil to, to Guyana and then maybe get through, through Guyana? I was even looking at going through Venezuela, for God's sake, at this point. I was, I was, I was, I was doing any, thinking about anything I possibly could to, to get out of the country. Um, but again, two weeks. You get to two weeks. No, 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 another two weeks. I did a, I did an unarmed, an armchair adventure festival. One of the online uh, lockdown projects that uh, that a couple, of the a, a few of the guys sort of dreamt up of, uh, you know, doing an online festival for adventurers stuck abroad. And I was on that from from my my terrace in Cusco. My my, my balcony in Cusco became uh, friends friends of joke amongst friends and family because every time they video called me, I'd be on the same damn terrace in Cusco. Uh, the same backdrop for what became four or five months. Um, and I think it was, it got to, I think my birthday around uh, June, the end of June, um, when they said it's not going to be two weeks anymore. It's going to be a month, um, another month stuck in, in And that was when it was really hard. It was really tough and it became mentally a, a really um, lonely and it became uh, the self doubt was 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 just strong, and I remember having days just you don't have a purpose anymore. You had such a feeling of purpose, and then you have nothing at all, um, and it's an impossible feeling to describe. You know, it's it's somewhere between in, in between helplessness and frustration, between anger and resignation, because the situation you find yourself in is not a situation that you have any control over whatsoever. Um, and the open-ended nature of the lockdown and this, and the fact that I was, you know, I didn't have any friends or family around me. Uh, I would sort of check in on every, every other day or so and try and keep, keep tabs of what was going on back home. Um, I, I did. I ended up. I tried to do sort of. Yeah, I tried to run a run a half marathon on my balcony, which was about ten meters round. Uh, just going laps and laps and laps of the balcony to try and keep myself do some exercise, keep myself sane. Uh, walks every day. I tried to get. I was going through a biography of of um, Winston Churchill at the time, and you know anyone who knows that the biography of Winston Churchill takes about two millennia to read uh, and it did it took me about the whole of the whole of my time in peru to read i grew a great big beard um a lockdown frustration beard it was almost like a hunger strike like a beard strike basically saying i'm not going to shave until until a border opens i finally gave up the ghost of that in june because it got to the point where it was almost socially unacceptable to be walking around with a beard like that um but uh, finally, I'll skip forward because this is yeah, this is months of my life. But ultimately, for the podcast, it's, it's not interesting. Um, but suffice to say, I tried to keep myself occupied. I tried to keep myself busy. May, you know, April passed. May passed. June passed. By June twenty seventh, I finally got the word that maybe uh, towards the tail end of the year, borders might start to open. I started walking, you know, doing walking every day. Um, I fixed the bike up. Uh, I, had to, I had to do quite a bit of work on the bike um, in terms of some of the fuel fueling issues I had. It had been sitting in the hostel for ages with no movement, so I had to change that. Third um, of July, I managed to get out and about into the Sacred Valley. I hadn't even been to the Sacred Valley. I mean, you're, you're literally, you know, half an hour from Machu Picchu, and I hadn't seen the damn thing. I was just stuck in Cusco, stuck in the city. But in early July, the, pro the province opened and you could move around the province suddenly. So I, I did a tour of the Sacred Valley on the bike and found out there were sort of a few issues that I needed fixing. I found a local mechanic called Danny, who was an absolute legend. Um, and I started sort of fixing some of the issues that I had. Um, a WhatsApp group started of, of some of the other, there were two or three other expats um, 
uh, in Prisco at the same time. And uh, I don't know if they can listen to this podcast or not. So I'm probably, I will say it anyway, but I, I basically went to a dinner with them when restaurants opened for the first time. Um, and one by one, we sort of had this fireside chat of, well, who are you? You know, what's your story? What brings you to Cusco? Why made you, what made you stay? And you know, it will surprise no one to under, to hear that the reasons for other people staying in Cusco were not the same reasons that, you know, that I, um, that I had for staying because, yeah, there were some real nasty stories there. Uh, you know, one person was an MMA fighter from the States. Um, he sort of, you know, been knocked out and was wanted by, by, by a pretty nasty group of people and was sort of, sort of couldn't go back. Um, another person um, had uh, a sort of, you know, the parents were, were heroin addicts and both overdosed when they were, he was young. And he now, you know, had, he, he had got, past AIDS from his from his mother and was now um, basically trying to, to find a, a lifestyle for himself in South America. Um, another couple was another one from South Africa was just mentally all over the place and there were just some some horrendous awful stories going around the table I could sort of see people were was not staying because they wanted to they were staying because they had no other option. Um, and then it came to me and I'm just thinking I'm gonna have to make something up. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm just going to, I can't just say, you know, I'm here because I've got my, my motorbike and, you know, hard I'm actually, no, I haven't got, I haven't, I'm not, a, I'm not a drug addict. Uh, I'm not a raging alcoholic. I don't have anyone who wants to kill me back home. Uh, I don't have an abusive uncle. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm Jack and I'm sort of fairly, fairly, fairly normal. Uh, or I don't, I don't, I'm lucky not to have any of, of, of these horrendous issues. Um, and loving, you know, loving family and, and I, don't, I remember just thinking, what on earth am I doing here? You know, what is what is going on? Um, but actually, those group of I, I, yeah, they won't mind me saying it because I'd absolutely count myself as part of it. But these group of misfits and outcasts and frankly downright weirdos became a, a sort of a weird family. Um, a family away because I, in the absence of my real family, they became. Um, they, they they became sort of my my, my Peruvian uh, Peruvian family and ended up to sort of trying to trying to keep keep each other sane by by meeting regularly and doing some hikes around the city, um, going up some of the viewpoints. Uh, and this is sort of going into July, and then obviously by July, uh, some of the things started to open again. But I ended up getting arrested a few times um, in Cusco uh, when there was there was a quite a hilarious moment. This is sort of a, a story that, that uh, I've only told a few times. But we were in a restaurant, um, and there, there was a law at the time. The law said you can be in a restaurant, but you must eat. You cannot you cannot drink alone. You cannot just go in and have a beer. You have to eat as well. So we were in this restaurant, had had some dinner. Plates got cleared away, and then we were having having a drink or two, a beer or two after dinner. And then suddenly, <laughs> this is the nature of Peruvian policing. The Peruvian police come in. It was literally like kick the door down, you know, go go go, raid the premises. Uh, and so the police come storming upstairs, um, and of course, if you say away from your tables, away from your tables, <laughs> and then this rather portly old policeman comes up with uh, uh, with his hand on his pistol the entire time. I don't know why he constantly had his hand on his pistol as though he was ready to draw it and start firing at a moment's notice at the at the you know the the rule breaking gringos who were standing there. And he came up and he said. Ah, and, you know, it's uh, it's it's that's bebiendo. I was like, uh, I said, uh, you know, it's tomando. You're drinking. You're drinking. 
And I said, and I said, no, we've we've been eating and and now we're drinking. We, we have had some food. This is just they've been cleared away. Uh, and he said, no, 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 no. It's this, you know, it's you're, you're mentero. You're you're a liar. You're a you're a liar. And I said to him, no, no, no. I've got I've got a photo timestamp from ten minutes ago of my burger with my drink. You know, I've been eating. And he kept holding his hand on his pistol, and he kept sort of being, you know, being quite threatening and physically intimidating. And, and then I said to him, in front of a group of Peruvians, and this is, I had, a few, I had a few beers at this point, so I, I said something that I, I would later come to regret, um, because I could see that he had a basically a, a revolver, and you could see that there were no rounds loaded into his revolver, so there were no bullets in his revolver. And so he's being intimidating to so try and impress the Peruvians. And, you know, the Peruvians are also acting very, very coy and very, very, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. And there's a gringo having had a few beers. And I said to him, well, you know, sen- sen- senor, it was, it was <laughs> officer, what do you think you're going to do with a pistol? Why do you keep holding your pistol? It's got no bullets in it. What are you going to do? You're going to shout bang, bang, bang. Um, at this point, yeah, that was a very, very bad idea. And, you know, Jack learned lesson very quickly because basically – very soon, I found myself with a zipped cable ties behind my back, um, basically bundled into a police car along with the three others that I was I was there with. We were taken to a police station and swiftly, basically told you had to pay this fine. And we said, "Well, we're not paying any fines. We haven't broken any laws." Um, but that went on for about five or six hours. At two o'clock in the morning, we were finally released, having been bounced around about four or five Peruvian uh, police stations in Cusco. Um, and at that point, that that really, that, you know, when you've had an experience like that, where suddenly the law comes into their own hand, and it doesn't matter what the law is, if somebody decides you're going to prison or you're going to take you to the police station, you're going, uh, whether you like it or you know, whether you've done anything wrong or not. Um, and so that really, for lots of us, was was the moment that we thought, no, we've got to get out of the city. And so, end of July, I left, um, and the the provinces opened. I managed to leave. And we went to this amazing, uh, went to the Sacred Valley for a few weeks. And then from the Sacred Valley, I basically worked out there was this magical place called Manu, Manu National Park, which is the jungle. And I'm not talking, you know, jungle that it's quite off the radar. Not many people know about it, but I can wholly recommend to put Manu National Park on the map. If you go from Cusco, draw a line directly east towards Brazil. The Andes peak and then they drop off dramatically really really uh, dramatically to the amazon basin and you have this amazing contrast we have the sort of the orange and the blue uh, the sort of the orange and the brown colors of the andes suddenly become green and you've got the greenery you've got the smells the humidity of the jungle the parrots come out the fruit the water um and you have you know i, I basically had this amazing off-road sort of the, the Peruvian equivalent of Death Road, I call it, um, down to the jungle. And we spent an amazing month down in the jungle, went to the end of the road, uh, you know, all the way down this dirt track, about 10 river crossings in a day, 10 river crossings back, um, you know, proper testing the Himalayan, testing the bike um, to its limits uh, with nobody else there. You know, you, every hostel you'd go to, you'd be the only one there. Every every guest house uh, you'd go to, you'd be the only one there. You'd be going, they hadn't seen gringos in nine months or something. Um, so we had a month there, had a month in the, in the mountains, uh, and I'll skip forward, skip forward, skip forward. But I got back in um, September, October to Cusco, had one month, final month in Cusco as everything started to sort of slowly reopen. Um, and finally Machu Picchu Machu Picchu reopened and we, we were told that after nine months nine long months of closure they would open the national park again uh, for, for for out for anyone 
no one no one went for nine months so the vegetation the inca trail was regrown uh there was a sort of you had to sort of cack through at some point because there was it was completely overgrown again the nature had taken back what what was what was rightfully its um before the tourist train arrived um and i think it was the 4th of november we were the first people on the first train into um onto the inga trail and we had signed gifts from the CEO, the, the 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 chief executive officer of the train company saying welcome to machu picchu thank you for coming thank you for you know welcoming us back and we were the first people along the inca trail and i remember vividly getting to a place called the sun gate um la, la puerta del sol which is obviously where when most people you sort of see images of the sun gate and it's normally crowded with people taking selfies and selfie sticks. And um, and I got there first, of the group of sort of four or, five, four or five that went on the Inca Trail. I was the first up there. And uh, I stood there. And as I got up to the top, the clouds parted from Machu Picchu. They parted over an empty Machu Picchu. Um, and I had this moment. It was. It was. It was almost. I, I did in a weird way um, have have a bit of a lump in my throat because it was. It was actually. It was. It was quite emotional. Um, it, it was. It was a bizarrely. I was taken taken by surprise because I wasn't expecting to sort of feel that strength of feeling. Um, and as I stood there, and we later walked around an empty Machu Picchu with only the rangers. We had only the rangers, park rangers for company. So you're seeing it as perhaps nobody has seen it since since it even opened, um, and it just felt like sweet vindication. I mean, we've been talking for you know almost forty minutes, forty fifty minutes, but that was nine months of my life that that I had self doubted, that I that I had um, deliberated over my decision, that I'd been told I was I was mad and an idiot, and um, the British Embassy had frankly you know given up on me. Uh, I lost. I'd lost the, the 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 drive that had brought me that far, and that was the awful, the almost awful thing was that you felt like you'd lost your sense of purpose. But that day in Machu Picchu, I can you know it was a wonder of the world, and for me it will always be a wonder of the world because it's not it was not just breathtaking in its in its beauty and you know, the mountains and the mist and the, the mystique of the place, but it was also the moment where I finally decide I finally realised that actually. I admit I might have made the right call and I may be getting out of this because three weeks later, November 26th, I left Cusco. It's in, in the midst of protests and tear gas. Um, people were, were, right, were basically standing up against the, the, the government. Um, there was a, basically a coup and uh, the president was toppled and people were protesting in Cusco and the police reacted with tear gas and with violence. I, ended up, I got caught up in it once or twice um, and got you know, tear gas in the street just by being at the wrong place at the wrong time, going to the supermarket. Um, but I got the bike fixed and I got on the road again and I was finally able to leave and I headed north. And I headed north through Peru, up onto the high plains, um, heading straight across, um, you know, f- up to, I think it got up to 3,000, 4,000 meters at one point um, towards the to the northern jungle. I did the northern Machu Picchu, which is a, a fortress in the north that very few people end up going to. But see, this is a thing you can see. I spent enough time in the country by that point to know, uh, to get under the skin. I could speak Spanish now. Um, I knew what to order in restaurants. I knew where to go, uh, how to find places, what to, uh, what to look for. And so the feeling of being back on the road again is, was an indescribably beautiful moment of just you know joy you could you could 
explore again and you could see new things again and suddenly i was it was the, the that wild camping pulling off the road and just just finding somewhere to pitch my tent again swimming in rivers uh, you know going along back roads and finding a river pitching up going for a wild swim getting back on the bike and going again and and, and staying in new places and getting caught in rainstorms and going down to the jungle again um in, in the northern part of the country basically heading towards ecuador and after about two or three weeks of this, I got to I got to the border of Ecuador and stayed in a town called Mancora on the coast. And this is Christmas. So I'm getting towards Christmas, bearing in mind that a year earlier I'd been in Sydney. Uh, I spent the, almost the entirety of 2020 in Peru. Um, but I got to got to the border, got to the to the to Mancora on the coast. I remember how someone there was a Brit uh, who was. Uh, who, who'd been working at working in Wild Rover, Wild Rover in Mancora. So I ended up going to not just Wild Rover in Cusco, but Wild Rover in Mancora too. Um, and they, uh, I had Christmas lunch uh, with three or four people, uh, the Canadian who was trapped there, uh, a Spaniard, an Argentinian, and this British guy who was a chef. So he cooked as close to a he cooked as close to a Christmas lunch as you could get. No Brussels sprouts, unfortunately, uh, but no. He did Yorkshire pudding and he did roast turkey. So we, we had we got as good. We got just about there on the Christmas lunch and that afternoon uh, I got an email my, my phone pinged and I, I, I could not believe what I was seeing because the email said um, you know something like confirmation of, of authorization of travel exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark and it was basically the British the British lady um, the British lady who I've been speaking to for sort of three or four weeks uh, at, at this point basically sent me through an email with the documents required uh, to travel through Ecuador and Colombia. The government, the foreign ministry of Colombia and of Ecuador had finally granted on, a, on an exceptional basis an exceptional author- authorization to cross the border, um, travel through Ecuador. I was given four days to transit through Ecuador um, to, get, to get to Colombia. And... I, I just had this moment. I, I, I fist pumped. I was whooping and, you know, just, I ended up jumping into the pool of this hostel fully clothed, uh, just from the, 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 the sudden rush of knowing that you could, something that was the, the impossible had suddenly become the possible. Um, and I had to get a COVID test. I got a COVID test that afternoon, uh, bearing in mind that I'd been given a date to a, a date and a time to arrive at the border. The border guards were told to expect me. And if I didn't arrive at that time, they wouldn't let me in. So I remember taking this COVID test thinking, this is negative. This is positive. Sorry. You know, this would just be the most hilariously awful joke. Um, that after all of this effort, I wouldn't be able to leave, but it came back negative. Thank, thank the Lord. Um, and I remember driving, driving to this bridge, <laughs> driving to the Ecuadorian, uh, the Ecuadorian Peruvian bridge, the border. And I came up to the, I came up to this long, long road. This long, long road, basically just yeah. And the, the settlement's clear, and it's just this one road towards the border uh, through marshland across the river. And I arrived at this border to three or four uh, Ecuadorian or Peruvian military, Peruvian uh, soldiers sitting on the border, and they sitting there with their guns in this in this plastic chairs, you know, drinking some tea or drinking some chewing some coca leaves. Um, and they just looked at me with the most ridiculous expression of what on earth is this driving towards us you know what <laughs> just i pulled up to me and this guy did they walked he sort of sauntered over and just just looked at me for a second and, and they and he, he said you're he said you're lost Estás perdido. and i said uh no you're so exactly 
donde quiero estar, which is, I am exactly where I want to be. I've got the papers. And I pulled out the papers, sort of brandished the papers like a, you know, like a scroll in front of him. And I said, you know, here is the signature of the Ecuadorian foreign minister. Here is the signature of the Colombian foreign minister. Here is the authorization in English and in Spanish that I have the rights to cross this border. And I know you haven't let anybody through in the past nine months and you haven't seen a gringo in the past eight, nine months, but I am allowed to cross. And he and he just picked this thing up and you know, he said, "Oh, look, come have a look at this!" Because they're all little crowding around, looking, reading this thing with like it was just you know uh, the best, the most interesting thing they'd ever they'd ever read. Um, and he looked up at me. He said, "He said uh, his initial reaction was to think that I'd forged the documents." Um, but then I showed him the email too from the Ecuadorian Foreign Ministry, and he said he just sort of just gave them to me, and he said, uh, "Go, go!" Uh, and they sort of clapped me off. As, as, as I left and ended up, you know, across the border, long story short, smashed the record all in four days, um, loads of rain. And I took the road through the jungle. I went through Quito, went to the halfway point in the world from Quito straight up to the border to, to Colombia. I'm doing eight, nine hour days and I'm the Himalayan, um, you know, you are, uh, it's not exactly just sort of, you know, hit the throttle and you're there, you hit the throttle and you wait and you, and something actually happens. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I got to Colombia. Finally, got to Colombia um, uh, on on the border. Um, and at that point, it was a case of same thing. Got across the border uh, with all the truck. I only had the truckers for company. Got to Colombia. Three days through Colombia to Medellin for New Year's Eve. Um, got to you know the, the famous uh, city of Pablo Escobar and the cartels and the narcos. And it's now completely rejuvenated itself. And it's this amazing metropolitan, cosmopolitan beacon of light and hope for, for South America and for Colombia. Uh, and I got there for New Year's Eve and it was locked down for New Year's Eve. So New Year's Eve was pretty crap. Uh, and then got some new tires in Medellin from Royal Enfield in Medellin. And um, I think it was, it must've been, you know, second or third of January. I left, I left Medellin and headed north to Cartagena. Uh, and, and, and Cartagena is is where the next part of the story and the, and the final part of the story really, really begins. Yeah, because, of course, then what lies ahead is the Darien Gap, and we all know there's <laughs> no route through that. Uh, so um, how did you get around that, and how did you complete your journey? So the Darien Gap is impossible. Uh, people speak about the Pan-American Highway and you naturally think that you can draw a line from um, Alaska to Ushuaia in Argentina and there's an unbroken line. Uh, that is that is not true. There is uh, the Darien Gap in the middle, which is effectively a jungle, mountainous jungle region between Panama and Colombia um, with the Caribbean Sea on one side, the Pacific Ocean on the other, um, the Panama Canal lying to the north uh, and perhaps the one of the most active drug smuggling routes in the world crossing it. Uh, so any, all of the, the, the drug production, the class A drug production coming out of, coming out of Colombia, uh, uh, Peru and, and Bolivia has two routes. It comes through the, the Caribbean ocean, comes via small planes, you know, flying across borders and dropping it into the sea or submarines, but it also comes through the Darien gap. And as such, the Darien gap is a impossible barrier natural barrier there is no road there if you a team has been able to cross uh, a team of a few british army people british army soldiers were able to cross a few years ago but that was an expedition with you know armed guards uh, and proper you know jungle clearance uh, teams it was a proper expedition so if you do it by yourself it is a hell of an undertaking and not something that i was prepared for so 
I went to Cartagena instead. Uh, and Cartagena is a port on the north coast of Colombia. It is a probably the most pristine, beautiful colonial era city that you will ever see. The Spanish, the influence of the Spanish Empire is ever present, um, and it was my home for a week or so. Um, and uh, yeah, that was I had I met met Royal Enfield in Cartagena. Royal Enfield in Cartagena were very good um, at, uh, at at having me there. Um, at uh, yeah, um, at basically making sure that uh, um, at um, yeah, giving give me a welcome, uh, and I was able to ride around with them for a few days. They loaned me an interceptor, and they had a few people on a Himalayan. And we did a sort of a short promo uh, video and interview, um, actually in Spanish. So that was the one takeaway from South America was that actually um, I could then do an interview with Royal Enfield Colombia in Spanish by the end. So if you sort of, I guess that was another uh, if you, you scrap, scrappling around, grappling for positives in the situation because there weren't many, um, but yeah, could speak Spanish by the end uh, and. I basically got to Cartagena with a day or two to spare to catch the Stalrat, the famous World War II boat across the Caribbean. Um, there was a German captain that bought this World War II trawler uh, about 20, 30 years ago. He sailed it across the Atlantic and he now runs, He well, before COVID, he ran tours from Colombia to the San Blas Islands in Panama uh, and up to Mexico too. So um, I, I caught the last boat. He was, he said, to, I've been speaking to him ever since I got to Peru. I said, please, you know, wait for me. Don't go. I need to get the, you're my only way out. Yeah, you know, I, I can't, if you go, I've got no other way of getting to getting to Central America and onwards. So um, got on the boat. I put my Himalayan onto a little plastic dinghy, an inflatable dinghy, pushed it out into Cartagena Harbour and watched with my sort of, you know, uh, with my heart in my mouth as this little plastic dinghy was chug, 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 went out into Cartagena Harbour to this bigger boat at four o'clock in the morning and then lifted it, the, the, the Himalayan, out of the plastic dinghy and put onto the, this this big steel, steel rat means steel rat, that was the name of the boat. Um, and then I boarded the boat and we had seven days across the Caribbean bypassed every single closed border in Central America. Every border was still is was closed and I think is still many of them are still closed to overland travel. Um and seven days later, you know, this is seven days no Wi Fi, no internet. Uh, I just had I read a, two or three books on the on the boat on the way over. Choppy seas, we had some storms, had some amazing sunsets, some amazing sunrises, um amazing moments of being you know, if weird things like you'd go for a piss, uh, go for a wee at the night, in, in the night, um, and the only way of for, for blokes of, of going to the toilet was to go up and stumble around two o'clock in the morning. You, know, you emerge out onto the deck, and you just get hit by the spray, and you've got the moon up in the sky over the Caribbean as this as this sailing boat slowly, you know, the, it, it rocks from side to side as a fishing boat, so it keeps rocking incessantly from side to side, and you sort of stumble over to the side of this thing, which is only goes up to about you know your thighs, just above your knees. And I remember vividly standing there and there was a rope about chest height. And I, I remember ducking under the rope and sort of positioning myself and having a, taking a slash off the side of the boat, thinking if I were to slip or if the boat was to rock quite suddenly and I just went overboard, you know, that's, I remember just looking down at the dark water flying past me and thinking that is, that's what death looks like. That is, that is death right there. That is, you know, if you were to fall over now, that's it. You, know, you are you're gone. You're never going to be found. You're just going to drown in the Caribbean somewhere. Um, and I had mentioned this thought that I had the next morning, and to the, to, the, to one of the German uh, one of the German sort of deckhands who was a, who, who was retired and basically spent his time seasonally going out there and helping helping with the the, the pan Caribbean Caribbean uh, trips. And he said to me, "You do realise that that rope that you're ducking under is meant to hold you in place." 
you for the for the past three days you've been ducking under the safety rope, which basically means that uh, if anyone was to suddenly slip or the water that rushes to down the boat each time it rocks over to one side, if you were to slip, you would be caught. He said you've been doing that for three days, uh, and you know, having waking up several times in the night going to the toilet, and uh, uh, and you could well have gone overboard. So uh, seven days later, anyway, we arrived. I didn't fall overboard. We arrived with the crystal blue waters of the uh, of, of Cancun. Mexico. Uh, we disembarked the boat. I had a week or two around there, and then basically I had two months exploring Mexico. So this is um, you got to. I'm gonna have to. I have to go quickly through this because it's just uh, amazing riding. Mexico was a fantastic place. It has not it was not on my radar at all for being somewhere that I was what I was looking forward to going to. But it, it is now one of the fa- one of my favorite places places that I went to on the trip. Um, and I had two months. I, I went from one side, the Yucatan Peninsula, the Mayan civilizations, to Chichen Itza, went all the way across Mexico, through the jungles, through the plains, up into the mountains. Um, I had my phone, I, 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 the waterfalls around a place called Palenque. Uh, I had my phone, uh, so I, we don't know yet. I, I think it was stolen, but it could equally have been a friend that might have jumped into a waterfall with my phone in his pocket. Uh, we, 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 he hasn't yet admitted it to me, but uh, that could have been, I'm not too sure what happened. My phone went walkies um, and I had to try and find it. I, I ran out of, could, therefore couldn't take any money because my credit card was strapped to the back of my phone. Uh, and effectively had to do the driving through quite a bit of sketchy areas in Mexico with for two or three days with no phone, no navigation, no money. Uh, so that was, that was an interesting experience and an interesting time. Uh, but sorted myself out as, as, as you always do. And then got to the Pacific ocean, uh, to a place called Puerto Escondido, uh, and just, just amazing, amazing moments, amazing photos, um, but ultimately, you're doing all of this with one eye north, one eye on the U.S. border. What is happening with the American border? What is my way out of here? How do I get? And that's that's still closed. And that you, that border exactly that border is still closed as we speak because ultimately, my time in Mexico coincided with the worst migrant surge towards the southern U.S. border uh, in history. There's there's never been more people going for the border because obviously the poverty in Central America is so stark that people have no other choice. Um, so I was going through Mexico. And people were saying to me, well, "What's your plan? Where have you come from?" And I said, "Well, I've come from, uh, I've come from, I've come from London." And they used to look at me and go, "What? Yeah, we've all come from London, but you know, where have you come from?" And I said, "No, I haven't come from anywhere before this. I've come from London." Um, and and you had to sort of explain to them, "Well, no, this is where I've been." Blah, blah, blah. And they said, "Okay." Once they got over the initial moment of thinking, "Okay, you're not actually a complete lunatic. You have done something. You have come from London. You're not lying." Um, but where you know the natural question is, "Well, where are you going next?" Uh, to which I always had to say, "Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure where I go next. You know, I might be stuck here." Uh, but two months later, basically, um, I got to got to Mexico City. Having had an amazing time in Mexico, uh, it's one of the few places in the world that is that was open, relatively open during COVID, so the, the restrictions in the country weren't too bad. Um, but I got to Mexico City. Uh, I got to, got to very near Mexico City, sorry, Puebla, a city called Puebla. And I remember the morning um, I was I was there around. It must have been, uh, you know, f- late February, uh, March 2021. Um, and I got to Puebla and I basically thought, this border is not going to open. And the naivety of thinking that things will be all right and everything will work, will work out okay was gone by then. The experience in South America had taught me not to trust, not to trust in uh, my misgu- my sometimes misguided instinct as to what I wanted to happen. What I wanted to happen was not what happened anymore. It hadn't been so for a very long time. So I had to presume worst case scenario 
that border would not open and obviously it isn't open. So um, that proved to be correct. But I basically decided, okay, how can I get off the continent? How do I get back to Europe? Um, if I'm going to beat this record, and by the end, the record for 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 the vast majority of the trip, the record wasn't wasn't really in my in my mind as such. It wasn't part of my part of my thinking. But towards the end, it became: if I'm going to make this worthwhile, if I'm going to make this weight worthwhile, and 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 have something, you know, it would be the cherry on the cake that, despite everything, despite you know the intensity of going through China and getting through China, uh, through all of those border uh, closures, just despite the frame cracking and having the off, you know, the real tension and stress of my bike breaking at the worst point in the trip in um, in Tibet, despite the wildfires, the heat in Australia, which, which threatened quite a few times to block off the path and made travel through Australia, frankly, awful at times, you know, with the heat of 45 to 50 degrees and the, the worst wildfires in history. And then getting to South America, and then having a global pandemic, um, and nine months stuck, <laughs> and, and, and borders being closed, and finding ways through not just a pandemic but a border closure, uh, finding ways across the Caribbean because all of the borders Central America were closed. So every, at every single stage, I'd had to do it you know, the hard way, and I'd been forced to delay and wait and and find another way around. And despite all of that if I could still somehow bag this record of being the youngest person to circumnavigate the world in a motorbike, well, it would be really worth it. And uh, it's a very simple sentence to say, but it means um, an enormous amount or it meant an enormous amount by that point. So I took the decision, either I try and cross the US border illegally and, and get into the States via basically trying to lie and say I had a doctor's appointment or I had a medical emergency and I had to get into the States. And that was not at all guaranteed because I had one boat leaving from, from, from Mexico. So there was one boat leaving from Mexico to Spain on a container ship, a car transporter. Is there a big VW Volkswagen factory to Mexico? And there's huge, you know, absolutely enormous vessels that transport these cars from Mexico to Europe where they're then sold. And there was one boat leaving in four days from Veracruz, on the Caribbean coast of Mexico. And I basically had to decide, do I make a dash for the US border, try and cross that border, or do I get on this boat? I cannot do both. If I go to the border, it's two days ride there, two days back. Leaves not enough time to get on that boat. So what do I do? Um, ultimately, the choice of the US was get into the US, ride hell for leather across this, you know, Kentucky, Texas, Mississippi, all the way up to New York and hope upon hope upon hope in New York that I found a boat that could fly me, that, that could ship me back or a plane that could fly me back. But that would have, the plane would have cost too much. The plane would have been 5,000 pounds more. 10,000 pounds was one quote I had. So I, I didn't have 10,000 pounds at this point. I had about two grand. I had nothing. I, I was right at the end. I had saved, I had spent absolutely everything holding out you know, in South America, trying to, trying to keep things going and, and keep the, keep the trip alive. Um, so I just had to make a decision. It's, it, it, the risk was too great to, to go to a border that I wasn't sure I'd cross to, to try and get to New York, you know, assuming I'd have no issues along the way and the bike would, would, would be fine all the way there, get to New York and then try and get on a plane or a boat Firstly, you know, the, the, the plane was so expensive and the problem with the boats was 
the Suez Canal. This happened all at the same time. The Suez Canal was blocked by the by the Evergreen boats or the Evergrande Evergrande boats. So all of the shipping backlogs in the north the north coast of the states were you know, two or three weeks. So the shipping time has been pushed back two or three weeks. So I just had this moment of thinking. You know, everything's going to conspire against me. And despite all of the efforts of trying to get to this point, I'm not going to be able to do it. But I found a company who said, we'll take the bike. We will take the bike if you can get the get your bike through customs. Um, but what, <laughs> this is, and this is the, the final hilarious story is that I was in Puebla, you know, and I suddenly realized, oh, my God, because I got the boat to Mexico, I didn't cross a land border. I don't have a bike import permit. I never stamped the bike into the country, you know, because no one gets the boat in at Cancun. It's not. It's not a big port of entry. There's no customs office where you'd ride up and they say, "Ah, oh, here, here for a period of time. Okay, cool. Here's your temporary import permit. Leave within ninety days." So I suddenly thought, I don't have an import permit. This bike is here illegally, and I, I, I called. I called the Mexican, uh, the British uh, embassy in Mexico. And they said. If a policeman were to stop you at any point and ask for papers, they were well within their rights to confiscate your bike on the spot, arrest you, um, and uh, and basically you know ch- charge you for uh, for being in possession of an illegal vehicle and within you know the the, uh, the federal state of Mexico. So I just had this moment of thinking, oh, <laughs> oh, how have I gone across the? I've traversed the country from the Caribbean to the Pacific, and the Pacific back into the you know to the center of the country, the mountains around Mexico City in Puebla, um, and I, I've been basically doing the whole thing illegally and what what's more when i get to the port to leave i'm going to need to have these papers to leave you need to have a, a you know an entry stamp to have an exit stamp i just thought no you know i've got months i've got i've got about a month and a half to play with to get back to london to the place that i started to break this this damn record and i'm not going to be able to do it and i'm not even sure i'm going to be able to lose to, to, to get out of mexico and so i Put a, I basically went out on Facebook and I said, I used the power of social media and I posted in uh, Mexico Transit. I posted in Facebook groups saying, you know, who knows? And does anyone know anyone? This is the problem I have. Uh, can I go to, is there, are there any customs posts in, in Mexico City? Can I, can, is there any custom posts in Puebla? And everything came back saying, no, 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 your only option, your only option is to drive all the way back to the border with Belize, which was a week's ride away. Go to the border border post and say, um, you know, uh, I've just turned up. Um, please stamp my bike in. Get your bike stamped, and then drive all the way back to Veracruz, which is another you know six seven days ride. Um, so I just didn't have that time. I did not have that option, and I was thinking, you know, <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? But then, amazingly, this guy reaches out. Uh, on Facebook, he says he calls me up. He's got his American drawl. He's like, "Yo, man, you know, um, I've got a, I've got my, got my brother. He's, he's in he's in Veracruz. He, he knows people, um, and and he said he'll sort you out. And he said he'll sort you out if you know what I mean. Um, and I said uh, I, I acted as though, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. You know, I do this all the time too. I, I legally illegally transport bikes into countries all the time. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so basically. <laughs> His, his brother, or his cousin, his brother from another another mother type thing, ended up being a member of the Veracruz uh, Assembly, of the government of the state of Veracruz. And um, no one will obviously know who he is because only I, I do. But um, I ended up having to bribe a, uh, a serving member of the Veracruz state legislature to effectively 
uh, grant a export import export company in the port of Veracruz permission to stamp my bike um, or, or take my bike into the port despite not having an entry stamp. So they through him, he put me in touch with them, and I had to pay him a certain amount of money. Um, and effectively, what we said was, we're going to tell the port authorities that you entered Mexico in Cancun. You put your bike on a truck. The truck drove the bike to Veracruz. You travelled here by public transport, and you're now the reason you don't have an entry permit for your bike is because the bike travelled on the truck. You have not ridden the bike at any point over the past two months. And I remember just thinking, this is this is sketchy, and this is you know if this doesn't work, this could go very badly wrong. Um, and there are photo, I've, there are photos I've sort of taken of, of of the few days I spent in Veracruz. Uh, as I went back and forth, I met I met this guy sort of <laughs> surreptitiously in ca- in this amazing colonial cafe in the centre of Veracruz, where I'd go out in the morning. And Veracruz is a horrendously humid city. It is just you walk around and you're sweating within two minutes. So I'd, I used to go up in my in my shorts and my uh, shorts and my uh, and my shirt, sweating profusely, uh, meeting this guy, and he said, "Right, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to get your bike into the port. Um, it is, you know." very very illegal but we're gonna we're gonna find a way of doing it and the morning of the 14th of april 2021 i went with the um i went with the uh the customs officers uh i drove the bike to just with a kilometer short of the customs point of the airport i got out i got off my bike one of the mexicans got on my bike and drove my bike into the port um, because he was a licensed influ- importer exporter he was allowed to enter the port whereas if i'd driven up there I wouldn't have been allowed in because obviously I had no right to ride the bike, but because he was a licensed importer, he could. And I just remember walking away, getting back in the car, driving back to the city, thinking that, you know, I'm not going to see my bike now. I'm putting my bike and I'm putting this record. Everything rests on the shoulders of the Mexican officials putting this bike, getting it through customs, getting it onto the right boat that's leaving for, it was originally destined for Barcelona. Um, and on the evening, uh, the afternoon of the 15th of April, Thursday the 15th of April, I walked down to the port, um, the port of Veracruz. This, this, uh, the, the port of Veracruz has these two long piers, long concrete piers that stretch you know, right out into the Caribbean. Um, and you can walk all the way along. It's about a kilometre and a half, two kilometres to the end of this pier. Um, and I was looking at the GPS of the boats in the harbour, and suddenly I saw my boat leaving, or the boat that I hoped my bike was on was leaving. And I remember running, absolutely legging it from my hotel all the way down to the end of this pier as this boat, huge, great container vessel, came past me. And there's a photo that I have of, uh, of as, the, as the boat comes past, leaving the, leaving the harbour, Veracruz Harbour, you can sort of see it chugging its way out into the Caribbean. And the last photo I have is, that yeah, the boat in the, you know, leaving the port, disappearing into the distance and i just and you still didn't know that your bike was on it you just the gps had stopped working on my bike i had a gps tracker but i couldn't see it anymore so whereas before i could know roughly where my bike was i, I just had to cross my fingers and think I, I really bloody hope it's on that boat because if it's not you know um, this is just this is just comedy everything that could have gone wrong the how, who could have guessed the Suez canal would be blocked you know a week or two before i got to i wanted to ship the bike off the 
the continent and 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 the, and the effects it caused on global supply chains in terms of the ports were just the backlog was enormous. Um, but I flew to Mexico City that that evening from Veracruz to Mexico City. From Mexico City, I then had about a four or five days there where Royal Enfield loaned me an interceptor um, for four or five days, and I had an amazing time driving around the city and going up into the mountains around the city, um, doing some amazing, you know, getting 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 to grips with the interceptor and loving that. Um, but finally, I think it was it must have been the tw- I think the twentieth. Uh, yeah, the, the the 21st, the morning of the 21st, after a, a, a really heavy night's drinking, uh, drinking in, in, in Mexico City the night before, I caught a flight um, and, I, and I, I basically caught a flight to, to Madrid in Spain, um, hoping that I was going to at some point meet my bike there. For Madrid, the Spanish border was closed. It was closed to any travel, any travel from, from, from Britain, any British nationals were not allowed to cross that border. I arrived in Madrid airport at five o'clock um, uh, on the morning of uh, the 21st, I think it was, or the 22nd. And I got to the customs point um, and basically I hadn't thought this through, but I, I wanted to try and get across the border um, uh, by saying that I was working for Royal Enfield. Uh, clearly, I got to the border at five o'clock in the morning trying to get my, my, my transfer flight to Barcelona. And this woman, uh, unfortunately, I did the stupid thing of... <laughs> You know, in the airports where you've got the European flags, uh, members of the European Union can go here, non-members of the European Union go to this queue. Me, being a bit tired, thought, well, Brexit only happened you know, a few months ago, really. Uh, chances are they're still let me through. That was probably a bad idea because I, <laughs> I turned up with a British passport in the European Union queue, which probably didn't go down very well with the Spanish. Um, and they looked at me and said, where's your, where's, your, uh, where's your work contract? Where's your, you say you're working for Royal Enfield, show me your contract with work. I said, well, um, I don't, I don't, I don't have one. I'm, I'm sort of doing marketing for them, and you know, uh, brand ambassador. And they said that's not a job, and they sent me away. And and I was sent to a room with a bunch of people who tried to illegally enter the country um, uh, from Mexico and from other parts of Central America. So again, I just had this moment of thinking. Each time that I think I've, you know, I've the great escape analogy: jumped the fence, the barbed wire fence with the bike, and I've landed on the other side. Each time I think I've got over the fence. Another, you know, it gets a bit higher and I just miss it and I just can't get over it. Um, but in the end, uh, I basically persisted and I went down and I had an interview with a police officer and um, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I, I put my most, um, you know, s- submissive. I was just completely... Um, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't realize I had to have a work contract, and uh, I, I got I actually had got one of the, the people from Royal Enfield to send an email saying, you know, they, he's going to do some marketing stuff for us in Barcelona, and that was you know very very kind of them to send that um, because you know I ended up, I was going to do some stuff, but it wasn't a work contract as such. And this police officer looked at me and she said to me, "You know, and I know that you have no right to enter this country <laughs> based on the law." Um, and she said, "Despite that, your story." Uh, is 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 quite is quite amazing and on that basis alone i'm going to allow you to enter the country pick your bike up and finish what you started um and i remember just looking at her, just having this moment of just of thinking <sighs> relief and, and and i was able to get to barcelona and from Barcelona, I watched as my, my bike was pinged around Europe from Germany. From Germany, it went to the Netherlands, and then it changed both in the Netherlands, and then it went to Bristol in the UK. And all the time, it was being things were being delayed because of the Suez Canal, and the boat was not going to get to Barcelona. And I was looking at the record deadline thinking, I've only got two weeks now. 
And then from two weeks, I only had 10 days. And I just said to them, I, I said to them, drop the bike off. The next port you get to, please, I don't have the time for this anymore. You need, I need to get back on the road now because I just don't have the time. And they said, well, the next port, the next port the boat's stopping at is Vigo in Galicia on the other side of Spain. So I said, okay, fine. It doesn't matter. Please drop it off there uh, and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll take it. I'll, t- I'll take the bike off. So flew from Barcelona to Vigo. This is, a, you know, this is all condensing about uh, two months of, or three or four weeks of, of, of just stress and, 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 and nightmare scenarios into a few minutes. But I flew to Vigo uh, and I think the morning, I can't remember when it was exactly, but it must have been sort of late, uh, early May 2021. Um, I get to Vigo uh, I get to uh, uh, I get to you know the, the, the place that obviously the bike was going to be dropped off at, um, and then a few days later, to my amazement, the ship <laughs> enters the harbour, and there's a photo that I've got of the ship entering the harbour, uh, and me realising that actually this I've still got this, it's still in the bag. You know, as people have already said about me that I'm a complete chancer and that I leave things to the last minute. There's a photo uh, of me, yeah, of the, as, the, as the ship chugs into the port in Vigo, um, thinking, I've still got it, I've still got it, I've still got this. Go into the customs office, but then, you know, they're, not, they're closed for the weekend, and that's two or three more days out of my 10 days left I've got to finish this. Um, and <laughs> it's this hilarious thing where I'm going in and saying, no, 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 you can't, you can't go in, we can't, we can't help you till Monday. And I'm saying to them, you don't realize how important this is. This is two years that I've been on the road and, and, and I can't wait two days. Can you please sign this now? And, you know, I can get things rolling. And um, they said, no, no, you're going to have to wait till Monday. So I had another two days out of my, out of the, out of the deadline that I was already working on and got in and they'd never signed a bike off the boat before. And no one had ever claimed, you know, entered a bike into a private bike into the port before. So we had to cross that bridge again and convince that it was accepted that it was possible. And then finally, Finally, after about you know a month and a half, almost two months of, of being apart from the bike, on the twenty fifth of May, bearing in mind that my record deadline was June the fourth, so I'm in northern Spain, twenty fifth of May. The record deadline was June the fourth. Um, you know, uh, and as far as I knew, the border with France was still closed, and the border with the UK, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to cross that. I just I left, and I did. I went flat out down the Galician coast um, for the twenty fifth, the twenty sixth. 27th you're going through northern spain um you know the beautiful hills and the greenery of, of being back in europe again and and uh, you know it's an amazing part of the world to travel on a bike the picos de europa are just stunning and, and you know people have written many many sort of biking reports from from the picos um my father at this time said to me again after we did australia together he said well if i can the border with spain and the uk has just opened up the ferry to santander is, is going to open tomorrow or open in a few days' time. Um, maybe I could join you for the final leg. You could do the final leg together. And I said, of course, that would be amazing. Um, and long story short, Royal Enfield Europe, again, were incredible in sorting him out a bike. Another Himalayan. He went, he went got the train out to Manchester and drove down in the, in the pissing rain one day in late May to get to Portsmouth, got, the, got on the boat at Portsmouth, met me on this fishing village called uh, Lias de Lastres on the northern coast of Spain. I hadn't seen my dad in over a year and a half at this point. Um, and I, you know, he stopped at this hotel. He said, meet me at this, this village. I drove down and obviously he could hear the distinctive, you know, the, the sound of the Himalayan engine runs out the front of the hotel and I could see his Himalayan. It was a moment, an amazing moment having not seen, you know, my, any family or any friends, anyone that I knew for over a year and a half. Uh, suddenly, you know, my dad was there um, and we started the final leg the final epic leg through Europe, through Northern Spain, 
across the border into France, up through um, Bordeaux, the Bordeaux region, into the Loire Valley, wild camping pretty much every night at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah sort of, uh, finding amazing wild camp spots. We're paying nothing at all to camp there, um, up through France, through the Loire Valley, into Normandy, and suddenly you're in Normandy, and 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 I was had this impending sense of it's all it's all coming to an end. You know, the, the, what had seemed so far away for so long was suddenly so close. Um, and what was you know that feeling of looking into the distance when you're riding suddenly that that mountain in the distance or that that summit in the distance was right in front of me, and I was looking at it. And the last day that I spent on the road was in uh, a few days before D-Day before D-Day anniversary. Um, and we did the Normandy beaches. We did Omaha Cemetery and lots of the, the sites that you see along the Normandy coast. Um, and it was quite a poignant reminder of the freedom that I'd had as a, as a, as a young 20-year-old, 20, well, 21, 22, 23-year-old now, um, compared to what those 21-year-olds and younger, down to 18, what their life experience was compared to what I'd been able to do and you know how awful their life was compared to you know compared to the, the the freedom that i've been able to enjoy so that was the last day on the road and this is the second of june that was the last day the third of june i packed the bike up for the final time having the night before trying to spend a few messages out saying to people look i know it's covid i know everything's in lockdown um, and i know you're probably stuck in different parts of the country but i am coming home tomorrow and my friends messaged back saying you are joking We've been telling you to come back for a year and you give us a day's notice, you know, that you're coming back because I, I didn't want to make it a big party. You know, previous guys had made it, had made it a big sort of party and a big ride out. And I said, firstly, it was COVID, so you couldn't. Secondly, I don't really like the the whole, you know, being the center of attention and the whole sort of, that, that doesn't really come naturally to him. I don't really enjoy it. So I said to them, look, if anyone's around, it'd be lovely to have you there. Um, I'm going to be coming back tomorrow at about two o'clock in the afternoon. And so after two years on the road, we board the ferry uh, about about sort of six or seven o'clock in the morning from uh, from Caen and on northern on the northern coast of France in Normandy, and we push out into the into the uh, into the Channel. And even to this moment, I can't really I cannot describe um, how how it felt to. I remember standing up on the deck and sort of feeling the wind in my face and, 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 and hearing people speak English on the ferry again. And it was just, a, the, the, I, I think overwhelmed is the best way of describing it. I, I wasn't processing the emotions that I was feeling. It wasn't massive high. It wasn't massive low. It was, it was a sort of a muddled in-between of thinking um, of a culmination of, a, of an effort that uh, had been a lot, lot harder than I thought it had been that had brought me closer to, 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 to death on numerous occasions than I, than I have been before, um, had pushed me further than I ever thought I'd go. It taught me a language, um, you know, had, had, had shown me sites that I never thought I'd see. Um, and despite, you know, and with all of that, all of that emotion came flooding back and, and the high moments and the low moments and the excitement to see my family again. I hadn't seen friends in two years. I hadn't seen my sisters and, uh, you know, in, in over a year, um, and the final ride back through the UK was just this sort of dream state. And the things that you think would jump out to you were the one, not the ones you expect. The fresh, the smell of freshly cut grass. I remember I had intercom with my dad. And I just remember going. He said, "Yeah, he said grass. 
especially cut grass. And then we drove past a Costa Coffee drive-through. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Costa Coffee. Uh, it's someone that spends all their time in Costa Coffee. But I remember saying, it's a, it's a Costa Coffee. I haven't seen one of those in, in two years. And then the pub came past, the King's Arm. I remember going, it's a pub. It's, you know, it's a pub. Uh, you know, it's, here we are. I'm home. There's a pub. Uh, uh, and And just the signs, the road signs became, I started recognizing the road signs. I started seeing, you know, directions to, to where I live in Hertfordshire, uh, getting closer. And then it was sort of 10 miles and then five miles and the anticipation starts to build. And as we turned into the final road, we live on, live on a hill and my, and my, and my, my dad pulled over to one side on the side of the road. I, I had said to him, can you drive him in front? Because I haven't ridden on the left-hand side of the road for, for over a year and a half. You know, I, I don't want to crash on my last day. I crashed on my first day. I really do not want to crash on my last day. Um, that would be bad karma. Um, so he pulled over. And I remember then driving past him up this up the hill uh, to where there was a film camera waiting on the corner, which led to later turned out to be to be ITV News, who sort of been all um, uh, someone had organised it to so come and come and film the return. Um, and I yeah drove up and uh, into into sort of the small enclave of houses uh, that, that is home uh, crossed through a, a ribbon a ribbon that someone had laid out and uh, champagne corks flying you know family had come a group of a small group of friends had come and straight off the bike and there was ITV you know there to there to interview hot off the bike um, interview me about the feeling of being back. And I just, I, I tried to think of a few words uh, to say, but it just sort of came out in this blur of, you know, the small things matter. And, and the initial reaction was the emotion was so vivid, um, but so expected. I was longing for that moment for so long. Um, and it was finally there. I can almost hear emotion in your voice as you're describing it now, Jack. <laughs> it's, um, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. Uh, to, to, to have the contrast of being away for so long and, 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 you know, being a ship out at sea. And I think that, that is the best analogy that I can possibly, and I can, I can understand now when you read the, the history books and you talk about sailors that went out for, for, you know, sometimes eight, nine months, years, they were away from their families and friends. They were away from normality for years and they didn't have an internet. They, they didn't have FaceTime to call people. But when they came back and the feeling of you know running out to the side of the ship and waving at people as you came back into the harbour, it was that I can I can get what they feel like because the just the sense of uh, it wasn't even achievement; it was just relief that I hadn't I hadn't badly injured myself. Relief. I, know, I got off the bike and I just slayer patted them. I just started smacking the bike with my hands with just this joy of this machine left this same garage two years ago. And two years later, we are back exactly where I started. The same engine, the same gearbox, the same, apart from the subframe, everything was exactly the same. And it had done everything that I'd done. And every mile that I'd done, it had done. Uh, every ocean I crossed, it had crossed with me. And the sense of kinship and the bond between myself and, and, and this hunk of metal called the Royal Enfield Himalayan um, was just enormous. Um, and it, and it, to this day, I, I do find it quite difficult to, to, to describe what it really felt like because uh i, I think the clo- the only way you would be able to feel a similar thing is to do a, is to do a similar thing um I, d- I don't think it's something that uh, that you can describe or can relate to in, in everyday life it's a it's a unique moment in my life that i will never forget so what was the first thing you wanted when you actually did get home having been away for so long well i obviously arrived back in back into covid so 
the, this, the pandemic that had delayed me for so long um, was also something that when I got back was just a reality. In Mexico and South America, um, there was you know more freedom. But when I got back, obviously, I had to go into the quarantine and the, uh, and the various control measures that were in place. Um, but the, I guess the thing I wanted most, to be, to be quite honest, was to go to a typical country pub, sit down, and order a order a pint of pale ale or, or something. To be honest, it could have been a pint of uh, uh, it could have been a pint of dishwater at that point. It, it didn't really matter as long as I could, as long as I could sit in sit in a pub and order and order a pint of a pint of draft beer. That was um, the first thing. And also, secondly, walk, walking the dog. Uh, I, I hadn't seen my dog in, in two years. Um, mm. And uh, uh, yeah, whilst now unfortunately he's no longer with us, but when I got back, it was a case of um, really really uh, realizing how much. The small things, are really yeah, yeah, the everyday things. Yeah. Um, you travelled alone. What advice would you give to someone who has no experience of solo travel but would like to undertake, uh, a, you know, an overland journey or even around the world trip? So it's a question that people have asked me since I got back, and for me, it's, it was never really a, a big step to to travel alone. I've, I've I've always been a bit of a um, a bit of a sort of a, a lone ranger in that sense. That I've you know I've always been completely happy um, being by myself. And actually, in, in some cases, I, I prefer being by myself than I would being in a, you know, being in a big group. So I've never been a sort of a centre of attention type person. Um, having said that, I think for people that do struggle with the idea of travelling by themselves, or it's a scary or daunting prospect, I'd just say to you that. Um, that which in life is you know is most daunting or is most scary uh, if you know in your heart it's it's the right it's the courageous or the sort of the, the, the difficult thing to do i would say listen listen to that and and and, for, and you know push yourself to the point where you think you know what this is just a reaction of me reaching the edge of my comfort zone um, and i can guarantee you that the first day or the first hour will be scary, you will be nervous, but after the first week, it'll be easier. After the first month, you'll be smiling. And after the first few months, you'll be absolutely loving having the freedom of being by yourself and uh, only bound by your own restrictions. And that is, um, that's a freedom that is very, very difficult to describe and even harder to, uh, to replicate. That's brilliant. Um, what about advice to young people with limited travel experience who dream of doing something similar but just don't know where to begin uh, organising such a trip? Wow. Um, so obviously, you know, I'll, I'll stress again, I, I had never ridden outside the UK before before leaving. So it's not as though I was a seasoned, a seasoned round-the-world veteran or a seasoned, uh, has had lots of experience riding outside the UK. I had never done so before, and I'd also never ridden a bike above 400cc before. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of firsts, and I, I, I'm not sure I'd recommend the tactic of jumping off a cliff and growing wings on the way down. You know, sometimes it, there were many cases where actually the wings could have failed, and I, I could have just ended up in the sea. Um, but uh, no, I, I do think it's not as hard as you think it is. Um, it's not as it's nowhere near as scary and as daunting as you believe it is. But it is absolutely 100% as fun and as exhilarating as you hope it is. So it's a case of getting getting over the first step. And I think what will, what will be released alongside this podcast, the short film, is called The First Step for a reason, because it is by far the most difficult step to take, the first one. Um, and if you can move heaven and earth and only work towards taking that first step, uh, the rest will, um, will inevitably fall into place. 
Excellent. Um, this being the Royal Enfield podcast, I'm going to have to ask you for an assessment of the Himalayas around the world motorcycle. Yes. Um, and, and, and this is something that I've, I'm, I'm now riding you know, another, another bike, a twin cylinder, twice the, twice the, well, many, many, many times the horsepower. Um, and yes, it makes me smile. And yes, it, you know, it makes me makes me whoop, and I do have the the, the fun of pulling power wheelies and uh, and all of these sort of things that you can do on a, on a higher powered bike. I would just say with the Himalayan, it was the right bike at the right time. It was the right budget for me, and also it spoke to me in a on a, on a primordial level because it was just simple, reliable, and rugged. Um, and I do one of the videos that Roll Enfield made off my own footage when I, when I, last year, I think it was November time. Um, in that video, I said to them, that bike in particular, it's not the fastest, it's not the flashiest, it's not the most expensive, it's not the loudest or the most powerful, but it is the pluckiest. And I do, you know, there's some part of me which sort of, which does um, seem a bit of myself in the bike because it's it, it very similar characteristics to how you, you know you could describe me in the sense that it's not uh, I'm not the the loudest out there I'm not I'm not sort of spreading spreading word about and, and trying to be the center of attention but um it, it you know I'll keep going and and the bike kept going and so I have a real affinity with the bike in that sense because it was just plucky and like me it's got scars and like me it broke and you know, like me it had doubts and it struggled but at the same time it got through it all and uh, and whatever was thrown at it whether it be record temperatures in Australia, blizzards in Central Asia, uh, you know, multiple, multiple monsoons in Southeast Asia uh, and, and, and Peru and cracks in Tibet and all of these things that happened to it. It uh, it took on and uh, got through it, even though it wasn't perhaps the readiest it could possibly be. Um, and it got me back. So the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And where is it now? Where's the bike? Yeah. It's uh, sitting about 40 metres from where I am sitting now. Yeah. Um, in uh, in in the garage, it is uh, it has been on a trickle charger, um, sitting there waiting for waiting for fu- for future for future uh, adventures. I'm not sure yet what it what hold, what the future holds for it. It's worth far more to me emotionally than it ever will be financially. Um, but um, I'm speaking to potentially some 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 Royal Enfield dealerships here in the UK to maybe display the bike. Um, I'd quite like to have a go on a on a Continental GT for a, for for, a, for at least a few months. So um, yeah, we'll see. We will see. Um, but uh, I have no intention of selling it. Put it that way. Finally, you travelled thirty five thousand miles through thirty countries at twenty three years and three hundred and forty one days you broke the world yet record for the youngest motorcyclist to circumnavigate the world by just one day. I reckon it must just be about impossible to surpass that, but I've got to ask, what comes next for you? <laughs> um there is a there is a severe danger of uh, of of peaking in life too early. Uh and one of the things I've struggled with most since coming back mentally is uh, where do you go from there? You know, the past two years have been the most vivid, thrilling, lonely, amazing. You can go the, the pendulum of emotions swing so, so much in the space of such a short period of time. And, you know, I've seen so, so much three world wonders of the world. Uh, as you say, it's 30 countries, um, every sort of, weather a condition imaginable every language uh, imaginable um, every culture 
So it's it's very, very tricky and it's, but it is impossible to replicate that feeling um, on a day-to-day basis. So being back, it's a case of firstly, what's next? Earning some money. You know, I've, 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 to be quite frank, I, I went through all of my savings in the past two years um, and some. So now was the time to, to knuckle down and real life hits a little bit. But I would be lying if I told you that that part of that part of my uh, my personality, the, you know, that spirit of adventure and the and the and the wanderlust and the curiosity is gone. It has not. Um, so there are plans on the horizon. There are things that I'm working towards, not just by myself but with others too. Um, that will that will occur hopefully in the in the next uh, in the next few years or so. So um, no, it is not a case of putting the bike in the garage, the garage doors closed, and turning the lights off on my way out to to, to sort of live happily ever after off off a, off a tale uh, or an adventure I had when I was twenty two, twenty three. Um, there are many more adventures to come, and um, yeah, this one will stand out by far as being the most formative and i think it always will um but uh, the story is by no means finished and um this chapter is closed but there are many more to uh, many more to write well we'll uh, look forward to hearing about those in the future but for now thank you so much for sharing your adventures your insights and your tips with us jack it's been absolutely enthralling well thank you very much for your time thank you to royal enfield uh, and also thank you to all the many, many members of Royal Enfield around the world, from you know Turkey to Thailand to Australia to to Colombia, who welcomed me, who sometimes fixed uh, not just me but the bike up to, um, and and kept me on the road. So uh, yeah, I think for for a company that never really sponsored or never did sponsor me from the start, uh, they they stepped up in my hour of need and um, and uh, and I think achieved something. Pretty, uh, pretty awesome. So, uh, yeah, thank you for having me and uh, thank you to the Wider Enfield team. Brilliant. Okay, take care, Jack. Cheers. Excellent. Thank you. Wow, what a tale. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Jack just as much as we have. To ensure you don't miss any future Ride Pure episodes, do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have ideas and suggestions for future episodes, do get in touch by email ridepurepodcast at royalenfield.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like, add us to your favourites, or even leave a review. Until next time, we wish you great roads and safe riding.